dedicated to each and every one of you who appreciate a great glass of wine. You know what I mean? It's Monday. Let's raise a glass to the beginning of another week. It's time to unscrew, uncork, or savor a bottle, and let's begin exploring the wine glass. Today, I am sharing a masterclass that I attended sponsored by the Paso Robles Wine Country Alliance. We had the pleasure of learning about the AVA as well as tasting some incredible wine. During the class, we tasted Villa Creek 2018 Roussan from the James Berry Vineyard, La Venture 2020 Rosé, Giornata 2019 Aglianico from the French Camp Vineyard, Lenny Collado 2019 Rising Tides, Dow Family Estates 2019-1740, and Broadside 2018 Black Letter Cabernet Sauvignon. While you're listening to learn all about Paso Robles, please take a moment to rate and review the podcast to help others find Exploring the Wine Glass. And if you have any suggestions of a podcast you would like to hear in the future, please send me an email at exploringthewineglass at gmail.com. Slancha. Hey everybody, I'm Lori Budd, a UC Davis winemaking program, someday service, champagne specialist, and WSET level 2 graduate. You can find Exploring the Wine Glass on all the socials as well as your favorite podcast catchers. If you haven't subscribed yet, now's the perfect time to swipe, subscribe, rate, and review. I promise I'll never tell you what to drink, but I'll always share what's in my glass. Because it doesn't rain a lot in Paso. Right. We, 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 we have some averages that we're going to see in a second here. But this stuff being as porous as it is, retains water. and retains water during those really warm days in the summer because it's underground. So it's not evaporating anytime soon. It's locked in. And so that allows a lot of the vines to find moisture throughout the summer. But what else does it do, though, from a, from a minerality and, and all of that kind of standpoint? Well, you find you get water retention without oversaturation. That's where we're finding moisture in the summer. But then there's also uh, components of, of phosphates. And do you want to jump in on this one? No, you got one. All right. So Okay, so uh, what they do actually is help to inhibit uh, the kind of decline of the natural acidity uh, that is within uh, the vines. And so while we have a lot of great natural acidity, it's not so much that, oh great, we have natural acidity in, in all of our vines, it's that a lot of this material actually helps to keep and hold that natural acidity uh, that exists. And so, when you're looking at uh, one of the kind of calling cards or factors of, of wines from Paso, you're finding a lot of great natural acidity that exists in our wines, uh, and it has a lot to do with these types of soils. Once again, this isn't rampant all over the Paso ABA. Again, it is in a lot of places, but as you go uh, to the east, you're going to find it a little bit more decomposed, actually. Uh, and so it's going to be like if you're looking and you're seeing, you know, uh, vineyards that uh, might have like scraped areas or sometimes even gopher holes or something like that and you're going to see well, like a lot of white dust outside of those holes and that's because it's, it is it's a little bit more decomposed than what you would find over in the western hills but it's still under there it's just a little deeper 
you have to search for it, but that is, it's still doing its job and it's still having a lot of water retention and it's doing its job with maintaining the acidity of the wines in Paso. So did I miss anything on that one, Adam? No, no, I think actually, I think what makes the Paso Rebels exciting for me, I've been living there for almost 19 years and making, I've made wine in every single subpopulation out there. Um, what's exciting to me is that there are no two regions. I mean, the, the soil diversity is ridiculous. Within the single vineyard, you can have like five or six different soil types. Uh, when I was at home, we used to own a vineyard right behind Justin Winery, deep into Adelaide. It used to be called the Debro Vineyard. We've been through several names, Justin owns it now. And we actually had a limestone street running through there, because it's a quarry um, west of, of Adelaide. And then we had calcareous, we had Lenny Collado down at the bottom. We had a bunch of different types of soil types. And I actually decided to make wine from Cabernet, from each of these things. This is all within probably one acre. And they were so drastically different. Um, you know, the, the stuff on the limestone pH was like over four, where the stuff on the Lenicolado pH was three five. I mean, it was just—it was crazy. And that, again, that's, that's part of what makes Pasarela so exciting and diverse. And we're still trying to figure it out. As much as we come, come here to act like experts, there's still so much to learn about Pasarela. So I mean, it's really so much fun. Uh, I mean, I encourage everyone you know, to really kind of dive deep into it. But uh, we, we've got experts coming in from all over the world that are just like scratching their heads. These guys, now people sit on so many different types of really exciting things. I mean, that yeah, they have some cool vineyards. We have some good pictures coming up of that. And, that, and we're kind of getting into the picture part of things, to be honest. Uh, so this is topsoil in the Adelaide district. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah yes it is. Uh, so this is topsoil in the Adelaide district. And you can see how thin that topsoil is and then what everything under it is. And that's all calcareous shale uh, uh, type of material there. So it's, it's, I mean, right there, right just below the surface. So we'll go to the next one. Um, and then we talked a little bit about rain. This is a really quick slide. It doesn't rain a lot in Paso. On a really, really good year, we might get 45 inches over on the western hills of Paso, maybe, you know, on a really good year. And that same good year, we might be 15 inches over far east. Uh, but you can see that we have this big rain shadow effect that happens and so uh, as, as storms kind of hit the mountain range uh, between us and the Pacific Ocean uh, the little thing called orographic lift that uh, pushes those clouds and kind of almost squeezes those clouds of their water uh, to allow them to kind of get over the landmass and then they drop less rain as they move east uh, towards uh, the, the eastern uh, ranges then. Uh, and so you see that we have lesser rain over there. And it's, what's interesting with that is, is that all of that rain that's being dropped over in the western hills where a lot of that calcareous stuff is right there near the surface. Uh, and some of that calcareous stuff, like I said, decomposes, is de more decomposed as you go east. And then we get a little bit more of the organic stuff and the clay and the clay loam stuff as you go east. And so you see kind of this uh, kind of differentiation of how farming then is done from the western hills where there's a lot less water applied, if any, because they don't need to, versus what might be a more, you'll see more irrigation lines as you go east, uh, because then there's, there's a river bottoms and things like that. And so you've got sandy soils that have a lot of drainage, or you have all of those clay soils that have that fracturing that happens over time because they, they dry up. And so then you'll find some of that differentiation in there and farming techniques. Let's go to the next one. Uh, so here, uh, looking at the piece that you have uh, in your glass, if you were to pull it out, I'm not suggesting this, you'll find that it is much heavier than it was uh, when you first put it in. 
This is from Tablas Creek, actually. So it's, this is two pieces of calcareous shale sitting on a giant piece of limestone. Uh, the one to the left, that's all brown, that got dug up. Uh, and it's, I mean, it's, it's of different size than, say, the piece of there on the right. However, it's one and a half times heavier than that piece <coughs> on the right because of what it has soaked up in water uh, and, and what it's retaining there. So uh, it's, it's, it's a very powerful tool uh, for our region uh, when it comes to farming and, and, and moisture and retention and uh, all those things. So. And it's a natural tool. It's yeah. Not, it's, you don't have to yeah. part it, move it in. It's already there and it works for you just because because it's there. It exists. It's the magic of Paso and the beauty of Paso. So, uh, next slide, please. So this is a Cerro Bay and Morro Bay within it. That's the Santa Lucia mountain range that we were talking about. Uh, we don't have the fog bank to show you, but if it were a fog bank, it would be right about here in Los Osos, moving to the north, out to the left of the frame, and it would come up against that mountain range, and on the other side of the mountain range, of course, is Paso. This is how close we are to the ocean. We really are that close and it's, uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing to be able to go to and enjoy uh, as, as people living there, but it's also another one of those great things that we uh, have going for us as a wine region. So Paso, uh, hopefully it's a little cooler than you thought. <laughs> That's oftentimes what we're, we find uh, with a lot of people saying, oh, Paso's pretty warm there, yeah, but we cool off. And, th and there's a reason for it and hopefully I've been able to share that with you. Uh, I don't know if you have, we have any questions right now, but I think what we want to do is get into the wines and get Before into they're on. Yes, exactly, yeah, because you've probably been sipping on them. Uh, so if we can go to the next slide. So um, the wines today uh, that are presented by Carrie, we've got Via Creek Cellar, Provature, Giornata, Venecoto, Down, Broadside Wines, uh, that are all there. Your booklets have them, all of their particulars. So we're not going to actually put slides on here that's telling you what's in your booklet. I think you can look at your booklet. You know, we, don't, we don't need to do duplicate efforts here. But instead, I'm putting slides up that show little glimpses of the piece of land that all of these wines are grown in. And so if we can go to the next slide, please. Uh, this is Via Creek Cellars, and uh, that is Ch uh, Canyon Road. On the right, that wooded area, that's actually the Willow Creek District. And then on the left is actually uh, the Adelaida district. And you can see how steep uh, that mountain <coughs> is. And I think uh, earlier we had a question as to what vineyard that was uh, that we were looking at during that Western Ranges picture. Uh, that's the same vineyard, uh, just now a different angle uh, that you're seeing. So here. So one of the things that I think is great about Paso, um, you'll have to correct me if the name's on these, but it, it was um, Jesse James's uncle who, <laughs> who created Jury James, yes. Jury James, yeah. who, who created this town. So it has always been known as kind of the wild, wild west, if you will. And so when you go there and you start to meet the, the winemakers and the farmers, I think you're probably the most dressed up, you know, yeah, of the guys, you know. They're super wild, wild west type of fellows. You know, they're definitely cowboys and like, and you know, and the, and the gals like just swung along right with them. So. Um, but uh, Chris Cherry is the winemaker here at Villa Creek, and he is so into biodynamics and the coveting of the land. And you know, they, it's a true farm. It really is a true farm. It's um, uh, it's organic and biodynamic. Um, they have sheep uh, on the farm. They make sure that they're doing their certain cover crops on the farm, um, and so it, it really uh, stewards of the land. Um, he's doing some great 
things with different varietals, as we talked about a little bit earlier. So what you have in front of you is the 2018 Busan. Um, I love white roan varietals. I love, love, love them. Um, I paired uh, a Wagyu steak the other day with Usiglio uh, Chateauneuf du Pape Blanc, and to me it was just absolutely gorgeous. And it's the type of wine, it's the type of grape variety that can stand up to a lot of different foods um, that you wouldn't expect to be able to drink with white wine. This one to me um, is all about power and grace. It walks the fine line of strength and subtlety. Um, you have these intoxicating aromatics, you get white flowers, um, nectarines. I mean, shout out what you're getting. I'd rather this be interactive than you just tell you what you should be getting. Huh? Guava, a little tropical flavors, yeah. Like honeysuckle on that. Marzipan. Marzipan. And then when you put it in your mouth, you get this glycerol texture to it. It's just really pretty. How old are these wines? Can you ask again? How old are these wines? These wines, I don't, I don't think I can get on that. I think it was planted in the 70s. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's James Berry so they were planted yeah. in the 70s. Yeah. Um, <coughs> so they have about 60 acres, um, and their elevations range from 15 to 1800. Um, they're surrounded by all of these oak and evergreens. Oh, that's a good thing to so uh, I didn't put a picture of the James Berry Vineyard up here. This is the home ranch of Via Creek, but these, these, um, this grape is sourced though from the Willow Creek District uh, at the James Berry Ranch, which is Saxum's uh, home ranch. And so Chris is able to get a small allocation of Roussan uh, from the James Berry Vineyard. I just, I'm sorry, I didn't have a picture of James Berry. So I, meant to, I meant to mention uh, you that. You wrote that the volumes are from the 70s? Yeah, but, but, these, these, were, but these were Chardonnay. Right. These are these are Chardonnay uh, roots yep. uh, root, uh, that were grafted over to Roussan. Uh, I, I think it was in the later 90s, right after Saxon. Because they planted it for uh, Deutz Champagne. Um, we're going to do a sparkling wine project there. That's how cool it was. Right? I mean, you know, they did Rotor up in the Anderson Valley. Yeah. And then they came down there and they said, oh, this is really basically the same. <laughs> it's, like it's a good place for Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. And then the whole thing crapped out. And, uh, and that's when Justin took over from his father. And he's the one that grafted uh, Roussette on. Yeah. But these are old, old, old vines, but they were uh, at least Chardonnay. Yeah. That was part of the reason that I was asking about all the work of vines, because like, what I thought always about like the wrong varieties and the Passerologist, Pintat was like dropped all these wrong varieties in the 90s. But before that, there was already like old vines. But it's always interesting, like, to understand, like, how, like, how the this world arise actually. But it was so cold over there. It was something that the, the climate and the soil that you've been talking about mm -hmm. was such that Champagne people came there and said, "Here's a good place to make, you know, 12 percent alcohol sparkling wine, so that you can be done." Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, the market for the for Chardonnay, and I think it also started to kind of age out. Uh, and so when when uh, Justin Smith took over uh, basically the, the home ranch. Uh, you know, he was going in the, in the lines of group of uh, Rhone style uh, wines and Rhone blends and, and all that. And so that's when Roussan found its way onto those Chardonnay roots. And Champagne, like, wasn't Champagne Dutch? They yes, were Maison Dutch that they, they exploded. They were, uh, they were contracted with uh, Justin's father. Uh, they're not there anymore. No, no, no. They, 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 they bailed out 
about five or some years in, and so he's sitting there. He had Chardonnay until about seven or eight years ago. He used to sell it to packs. That's about right. So it's like I said, it was around then. That's when he got. That was the last, the last Chardonnay. So there actually was a little plot of Chardonnay. Yeah. Broadside started with uh, James for Chardonnay. Okay. In fact, Pebbles, Jason Dad was my vineyard manager when I was running Jekyll. Okay. Right. And he actually, and he also did a couple of barrels they bottled for the Polana. And I forget it was like a Polaner kind of private label thing that they only sold in New York City. And it was James Barry Chardonnay. So it's, it's floating around out there somewhere. The Chardonnay was great, by the way, because it has a still wine too. It just how much money you make with Roussan from Passover? Yeah, a lot more. <laughs> 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 That's all well, if you look at the price on the wine, yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah. Uh, and Cote de Cote, and those, those, that's a Rhone-style blend, 
uh, a, a passive blend uh, and a passive blend. And so what we mean by passive blend is uh, Stefan's vision when he came uh, to Paso uh, way back when was to create a wine that he couldn't create in Bordeaux as a Bordeaux winemaker. And so he was able to blend Cabernet Sauvignon and Syrah together, uh, threw in a little Petit Bordeaux, and there you have Optimus, and, you, and there you have uh, Saint Cuvée, are those wines. Uh, the uh, wine that you have in front of you, of course, it's it's kind of a Rhone style blend, and so it's basically a bleed of what would be Cote de Cote, uh, as Cote de Cote is, is picked and brought in and, and blown off. Well, what I think is important about this wine is um, it looks like every other rosé that's in the market right now, right? That pale pink color. But when you get it on the nose, you get some more of those ripe berries, almost like uh, berries and cream, if you will. But on the palate, it's it just opens up. You get you get this tannin texture, and then just wait for it, and then your mouth just starts watering. So if you're talking food wines, yeah, it should be in restaurants, you know, and. I think that's some of the things that you can say about rosé that would surprise you is that it would make a great food rosé, you know. And I mean, I'm sure this is not getting as much as like. That has a great saline edge. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. And so you might be looking at us going like, well, then why would you bring this wine if we can't get it in market? Well, it it also shows you the potential of so many other brands that do exist in Paso that are doing. Some, some similar winemaking styles uh, of rosés that you can get in market. There is another rosé that's going to be out on the chilled wine table uh, a little later that is not this style, but that doesn't you know make it any any less or any more or anything like that. But when you see some of the rosés though coming out of Paso, especially lately, I mean there's there's something there uh, to to really kind of take note. To. So, all right, uh, moving on. I don't want to say this name wrong, so I'm going to have to say it first. Giornata. Giornata, yes. Giornata. Um, so what I love about this region is that there's also a little bit more of a warmth um, and there are parts of it that are very much akin to uh, Italian regions. So you have Italianico, um, which you know, as you know is from Campania, I'm definitely seeing Campania, which is a warmer in, in Tuscany. Uh, this is a couple who they're both working the vineyards, Stephanie is working the vineyards and Brian is working the wine. And they're doing, they're picking at lower sugar levels. They're handling the must in a very soft, gentle way. Um, they want to amplify the acidity in this wine and make sure that it's lower in tannin. So you're not looking at this big, brooding Alianico that you expect out of, uh, of Tuscany, I'm sorry, of uh, Campania or Italy, but it's a very elegant style. So you get some more of those leather spices, dark fruits. got a good structure, but it's not an overbearing tannin. It's not like it's cleaning out your teeth. You're getting this soft kind of tongue palette thing going on. I think it's absolutely beautiful and unexpected. I love how it's like, you're saying really savory, but then somehow still super fresh on top and then and just kind of freely rolls through the mouth. Yeah. yeah. These wines stay with you. I mean, I was taught that if a wine stays with you for 30 seconds, then it's a good wine. That's the test of how it's a good wine. And all these wines stay with you, and they're like hanging out with you. It's not just going down and, okay, that worked. What's next? Like, you kind of have to, they're, they're pensive wines, you know? 
you know, this is the this is the spirit, you know, of of winemakers in this region. You know, it's this it's this like I said, it's it, you want to call it wild wild west, but it's really just about passion, about doing something that they feel is going to be amazing, and you know, the the proof is in the bottle. And he does a beautiful job of everything he touches. I'm mm -hmm. a huge fan of the Torelli family. Um, he does some of those clay amphora, you know, <coughs> skin contact yeah. ratios and things, but. I mean, you know, I mean, the magazines all love him. I mean, yeah. but his stuff, I'm not a big fan of California, Italian, anything, yeah. but there are a few producers and growers that are really doing a fantastic job, yeah. and I think there's so much input um, and work that has to be done in order to yeah. do a great job. Yeah. And he's completely committed. He and his wife, his wife is a great grower. She does all the high yeah. So before we move on to the next wine, which we will, can we go back one slide real quick? Uh, I just want to talk really quickly about the vineyard Highlands District. This is not all Alianco. <coughs> it's a very small block that exists out on uh, the, what's called the French Camp Vineyard, uh, which is way east as part of the Highlands District. This is owned by the Miller family, the same folks who farm the Yenacito Vineyard, if you're familiar with that, uh, in Solomon Hills, thank you, uh, down in the Santa Barbara region. And so if we advance one slide, this is the Alianico when I asked them, can you send me something? Uh, and I think they actually took this picture last week. Uh, so it wasn't actually picked yet, but this is what it's looking like this year. So this is, would be your 2021 uh, Alianico that they uh, snapped for us uh, for, for, for this presentation. So. On to Linny Coloto. So this is Linny Coloto. Um, one of the things I learned about Matt Trevisan is that he's the master blender. He um, is planting over 50% of Grenache on the property. It's 54 acres. Um, they are moving into doing more hand picking, um, less tractor work. They want the, you know, less of that uh, machine and weight impact uh, in the vineyard. I always think that that's really important too. Um, I learned when I was up at Pinot Camp, and I didn't, again, it's, oh yeah, no, no, that makes sense. There's so much organic living matter in the first eight inches of soil that when you put a tractor on it, it's crushing it. It's killing it, essentially. So um, so they have that idea as well, and they're trying to move away, and they're doing a lot more hand-picking, a lot more hand-pruning, a lot more you know, uh, human work in the vineyard itself. Um, what I think is important uh, is Matt is looking for an expression of the vintage. So that's why you're not always going to find the exact same uh, blending variety percentages. Um, it may change, but again, they're always going to push for uh, more Grenache. That said, uh, back going back to the calcareous soils that have uh, that water retention, Grenache doesn't need a lot of water. So, in a place where you know water isn't uh, California's <laughs> known to have droughts, so it actually can still be very you know um, fortuitous, and it can still grow without all of that water. Um, this is 67% Grenache, 26% Syrah, and then 7% Graciano. Um, what are you getting on the nose on this wine? Mustard seeds. Mustard seeds. Yeah, yeah. I, I was just thinking mustard green when you started to say that, too. It's very, like, spicy. Spicy. Early, spicy. spicy. Yeah. Just on the nose, yeah. So some of that is going to be coming from the Graciano. It's only 7%. You get that rosemary, you get that sage quality from Graciano. But if you taste it, you get the fruit from the Grenache and the Syrah. 
because it's predominantly Grenache, it's not as weighty, but you still get some of that black fruit from the Syrah. But the Graciano is going to move those kind of herbaceous flavors into more of a bloody, iron-rich quality to the wine itself. And so it's almost steaky, you know? Um, Can I talk a little bit about Graciano? Yeah, I was going to say, can we talk about the elephant in the room that no one knows about Graciano? <laughs> yeah. So, Graciano, so... Um, Oops. About Graciano. How can we not? <laughs> so, Go ahead. Yeah. So it was, it was basically that, that uh, uh, there's a nursery in town that when a lot of the winemakers in town were starting to order um, what they thought was going to be Morvedra or Monastrell, uh, was mislabeled. Uh, and so later on, they come to find out, uh, it was actually Justin Smith of Red Saxum uh, that uh, he had somebody visiting um, from uh, Spain that said, that's, that's, not, that's not Monastrell, that's, that looks like Graciano. So, uh, Justin decided to have it tested, tested out, tested to be Graciano. There was a ton of growers all over uh, Paso that ended up with Graciano. We so have a lot some of stuff in Paso. That's great. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. Yeah, and so some people didn't quite like it. Some people just ripped it out. They wanted they wanted Morvedra. They wanted Monastrell. That was that. Others were like, hey, actually. It's kind of working. I'll keep it. I'll keep going with it. There's some actual single uh, uh, varietal bottlings that exist out there now, uh, but it was kind of one of those funky little things that happened in Paso that it's just kind of cool, and it, now it exists, and that's Paso. So <laughs> you could market yourself as the Graciano capital of North America. You remember when everyone thought they had Bruce on Lodi? Oh yeah. That was. Randall Graham's Randall doing, right? Yeah. Yeah. I was talking with Chris Cherry about the Graciano thing because he planted a ton of it. And uh, it was that new vineyard at, at, uh, at the estate. Mm -hmm. And he said it was a happy accident because the reason they wanted the Monastrell was because it has more acidity. The, Sp the Spanish Morvedra has more acidity than the Morvedra they have, which of course came out of Tavos Nursery. Yeah. And so they wanted it as an adjunct to, you know, to, to get things fresh still happens at Graciano is, is high acid, <laughs> thankfully. So it wasn't like they planted something that didn't work. It's just, it, yeah. and they, they didn't notice it really until, I guess it was Chris, it was, uh, and, uh, Chris and Justin were the fourth, ones who were looking at fourth it. Fourth or fifth leaf, I think. Yeah, when they yeah. said, like, yeah, you know, because it was definitely giving acidity, get what they wanted, but then the leaves didn't look right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's a happy accident. It's, it is a happy accident uh, uh, in, in our area. and. and it's uh, it's one of those things that I think um, now that they know, now others are kind of looking at it, and there are new plantings now of Graciano that are that are starting to go in. Um, but I think when I was talking to Chris recently about it, also Chris Cherry from Via Creek, is that he said though that it is definitely uh, something that is very aspect dependent. Uh, that it, it for its ripening and for the way it's it's going to grow, that it really needs to be really fine-tuned because there are some winemakers who did plant it and ended up ripping it out because it didn't get right because it didn't actually achieve what it was supposed well, there's to an extremely achieve. famous winemaker down the Santa Rita Hills who has a lot of it. So would you say that it's a great chance that the same way that happened with Zinfandel 3B drug and Primitivo that brought like a lot of varieties that's still trying to be that they're being discovered with time because they mixed planted from those old vines back in the time life of Maui with all the companions that sometimes like even Ridge has that Paso Robles with these varieties most likely going to find 
with more time in research, there's like mixed plantings in the variety? I think so. I think so. I think we're seeing that happening out. Um, there's a, a vineyard called Paper Street Vineyard in Paso. It's a, it's a newer vineyard uh, owned by the Ducey family that you're kind of, in a sense, kind of referencing because old plantings of Zinfandel that have carignan within them. And so, and they're already only just a few years in, already starting to graft and find things that are, are growing better and, and even doing some mixed plantings out there, some kind of field stuff. Uh, and so I, I think that yes, we do have still a lot of experimentation as new vineyards are planted and as some of these pieces of land are found to be just amazing. I mean, if, if you come to Paso, please look me up because you gotta go to this vineyard, Paper Street. We recently had a group of journalists in town uh, just last month and we went up there and just absolutely blew them away uh, that the, what they're doing up on top of this mountain and it's so hard to get to as well. Uh, and, and But it's just, it's, it's cool. And it was mostly kind of winemaker uh, geared because a lot of winemakers in town who were gonna source from this piece of land, they trust the Ducey family and they knew that they were gonna group, grow some really cool shit that they were able to say, hey, can you put this in for me or can you put that in for me? And now they're all sourcing from there and they're just they're producing some really great wines. And that's part of, I think, what some of the growth and some of the experimentation uh, that's happening and that some of the discovery that's still going on in the past. So we might drink some cool Oh yeah, absolutely. Thomas <laughs> Creek, for sure. Yeah. But in the meantime, like, was it, like, was it mission? Why? like historic around this region? Like Missions? Mission? Yeah, the mission system actually did exist in the Paso Robles region, and so you did have mission grapes uh, back in the 1800s that were planted and then went fallow and found their way here, there, and everywhere. And so that was part of some of the original kind of things that, that identified us. And then also, if you look back on during the gold rush period, well, after gold rush, after all of those immigrants that had come uh, to the United States to you know find their fortune, uh, and then didn't, they found their ways actually down in El Paso. So you had like Swiss colonies and French, Italian, and all these other European kind of colonies, if you will, all around that ended up wanting to plant wine grapes. Uh, and you know, culturally that was part of who they were. And so that was kind of, I, I suppose you could see the kind of beginnings of it all. Uh, and so the mission system, while they had something to do with it, I think that really it, it had a lot of the European immigrants that that had more to do with it all over the state of California. Yeah, but you gotta also remember that in the early 1900s, there was about a Biloxera um, that devastated 10,000 acres in this region. Um, and so they were having to replant. And so, it, it, you know, how they were getting them and how they were mislabeling them um, is kind of more about the personality of the region <laughs> and, and what they do now and how they're bringing in different varietals and is more about the tenacity and passion of the, the community. Yeah, it is. I know we started about 12 minutes late, and so I need to tell you it's 1.30 right now, just to let you all know. Uh, we've got two more wines to go. Uh, we're going to do those two wines, but if you've got to go, if you've got to excuse yourself, uh, our apologies that we're running a little late, uh, but this is a really super fun conversation, so you better not go, because I'm going to take <laughs> <laughs> so. There's a lot of great wine out there to taste, too. There is a lot of great <laughs> wine out there to taste. <laughs> so we're going to get there. We're going to get there. I promise we're going to get there. Uh, this is the Linicoloto uh, Winery, uh, and so we were talking a little bit about Matt and, and his ways and his things. Well, this actually was taken um, just a couple weeks ago. Uh, that, um, 
while he was in the midst of, of pressing and doing some pump overs and the like for we did a little media tour as I had mentioned and we went in and, and we did a few things and this was taken just before uh, we, we took over his space so Dow Dow Mountain beautiful stuff we have Maeve in the room Maeve I'm going to invite you at some point in time to jump in uh, but Carrie please so uh, this is 1740 so it's 78% cash franc and the remaining part is Merlot, 22%. Um, that to me is always surprising because I don't suspect that you're going to get a uh, Cap Franc uh, heavy wine coming from us. But I, everything surprises me, I guess, now at this point. What I think is cool about uh, these vineyards is that it's really about the power of the Maxi of the mountain. This is where, um, in Hoffman Mountain Ranch, was where the modern winemaking in Paso really took place. Um, so, I wanted to make it to go in a little bit more on what you guys are doing and, and uh, sure, happy to. Yeah, and just like you, Carrie, I underestimated Paso <laughs> yeah. before I came to visit Paso. And like many of you, I was a buyer of a song, Lifelong Wine Geek. Um, and when I came to Paso and saw what was happening there, I was really shaken to my core because it really is the wild west of the wine world. And yes, we got to see up a little bit for y'all today. But really, um, when I say that, what I mean is that the incredible diversity of this region and the fact that to me, this is the last place people can secure incredible quality vineyard land and do what they are driven to do. And for Daniel and George Dow, that was Cabernet and Bordeaux uh, varietals. And they found this amazing terroir, Dow Mountain, originally discovered by Andre Chelichev in the late 60s for a man named Dr. Stanley Hoffman, and ultimately then found again by Daniel Dow um, but I, think, I like that you brought up Andre Telechef because he called it, um, uh, this is like, it's just a very romantic idea, right? He called it the jewel of ecolog ecological elements. It's, it's a powerful statement, and when you stand on the mountain, you can see why. We are at 2,200 feet elevation. Uh, we're only 14 miles from the ocean, so we're way up there in the Adelaide District on the west side. Um, and we have the calcareous clay soils uh, with that limestone that Chris was talking about soils of Bordeaux and the climate of St. Helena and Napa. And we have that huge maritime influence that just washes right over this vineyard every day. The fog just rolls right in and the grapes love that and we love that. And then it rolls right back out. So when you stand on this mountain and you see 56 degree slopes, high density planting structure, 26 to 3600 vines per acre to intensify the struggle. Um, we have an 18 inch cordon, so way lower than the ground those grapes grow. It's, it's really an, a singular focus on the highest possible quality by Daniel Dow, who is um, our viticulturist can and our winemaker. Can we go back to that slide? I want to sh stop you for a minute. And I'm just going to get a picture of you guys. Like, you can see the slope on that side, right? You can see this the slope and the steepness, if you will, of it. But that's a baby, right? That's how, like, how steep is that? The highest vineyard, the, the steepest vineyard planting is 56 degrees. So the first year when I was gonna, when I moved there, I'm like, I'm on a harvest. Yeah, I fired yeah, myself yeah. like in five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was like, I'm gonna be great at this. Yes, because we harvest at night, which is that next shot that you can see on the next slide. Um, in the dark with headlamps and lights on our, you know, my case on my foot. Not very graceful, not very efficient, but you know, it is a very intensive viticultural program. And to your point earlier, Carrie, about everything there is done by hand. Um, it, it's, it's an intensive viticultural focus. And that quality, you know, that, that goal is the highest possible quality in the glass. 
So I chose, I, I, we have another dowel line in the other room, uh, so all the line, you'll, you'll, you'll get there. Uh, this happens to also, I was talking to May about like, hey, we're gonna do Soul of the Lion in the main room. I really wanna do something kinda cool though as part of uh, the master class. Uh, maybe something that's not exactly readily available. And before I even s suggested 1740, because I really dig this wine because it's Cab Franc kind of led, uh, Maeve actually said, well, let's do 1740. Cause, so this wine is actually not available in market, right? Correct. Right. Not so, really close. I don't drink any of these. Come visit. That's the other thing about the Linicolora wine. So when I tasted that wine ahead of time before this this planning out this class, again, I wanted to choose something that is cool and different and unique and bring it to you so that you can taste it. Because you, unless you come to Paso, you're not going to taste this stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I, I want to get us there. Is what you said. Well, yeah. We are trying to get you there because what you're tasting up is all of these all these wines today are the past, present, and future of Paso. You know, we have a misconception, I think, as songs like what Paso is. This is what Paso is. All of these wines and these families and these hands and these stories. Like this is everything. It's authentic. It's small production. It's family owned. All in Paso. When you come there, you can feel it. It's exciting. I mean, it's not super high alcohol hot wines. Yeah. Paso to be from wherever you've experienced Paso wines. Are there really fun, good, you know, Paso wines that are on the grocery store shelf that are right about here? Yeah, there are. <laughs> they definitely are. They're, they're there. They're little billboards for Paso. But but ultimately, what we're hoping is is that you start to consider the wines that are on this shelf and on this shelf and on this shelf, or coming out to Paso and, and, and considering it more if you're a retailer or if you're on premise that if somebody comes to the door and knocks on your door and says hey you know I'm Steve from Vina Robles taste some of these wines if you will you know that you'll open the door that you'll consider them and then you'll actually say okay well, all right let's check them out so I have a question in the back as, um, as from a buyer perspective from a retail perspective when I have customers who get accustomed to the $15, $20 Paso wines, how do I move them and explain to them the rest of this? Great question. Yeah. And, that, and that's the, that is a, I, I've got people raising their hands that want to actually reply, I think. I'll let you. Uh, first and foremost, ask questions. That's the building lock of creating any sale. Make sure that, the, that whether you're on-premise and you're dealing with a guest or you're off-premise and dealing with a customer, that you earn their trust by hearing, by listening to them. Um, if there's any preconceived notions about any ABA or, you know, I don't drink California wines. Oh, I only drink Italian wines. Please get those out of my face, you know? Uh, oh, Super Tuscan's only for me. Uh, there, there are ways to work around, and it always comes back to having a conversation with the person. Yes, and yes, California wines can be a little overbearing. Or yes, Paso Robo, you know, you're accustomed to paying X amount for Paso Robo wine. And 
here's an opportunity for you to maybe spend a little more and have an experience, you know, rather than just tossing back a couple of I think what, it's, it, yes, it's all about communication, it's about that conversation, but it's also about comparison and translation. Sure. So, and, then, and this is what I kind of wanted to say about this wine. I like this wine very much because it is Cap Franc. And I love Chinon, I absolutely love Chinon. And I, you know, someone sent me a couple months ago, I want you to taste my Cabernet Franc from Argentina. And I was like, yeah, let's try it, let's do it. And I was like, ah, it's like, it tastes like Cabernet from Napa. And, I don't want a Cabernet Franc that tastes like Cabernet Sauvignon from Napa. And so for me, this has got a little bit, because of the Merlot, it's got some of that softness fruit to it, but it's not, to me, this is much more of a Bordeaux style. It's not that Chinon style that I also do like, but it's certainly not reminiscent of a California Cabernet. So that said, and I, I apologize if we cut the, the answer on that short, but we got to move on to Cabernet. <laughs> Before we move on to Cabernet, I, I do want to say, and, and I've been fortunate enough, of course, when people come to our area that are, or whether they're tasting wines for, you know, a, a purpose of, of reporting or a purpose of, of sharing or buying or whatever, something that resounds in my head is, is that it's always about trusting your palate. And that if you are able to then trust your palate with whatever it might be, a $15 Cabernet Sauvignon or a $100 Cabernet Sauvignon, uh, but if you have a place for it and you can trust your palate, that's what Paso really is. It's just giving it the time of day to be able to uh, kind of assess for yourself uh, and, and hopefully that there's a place in your program for it. Let's move on to, to the black letter, and then we're here afterward, and we'll be out in the room afterward, and we can answer a lot more questions. You have one more thing to share. I have a question because I just saw the guest uh, showed the picture about, uh, about harvest. Um, like, how much of a challenge is, like, for Pasalobos right now in terms of sustainability? Oh, can each brought threat, labor, generations that are becoming <laughs> interested in working with vines? Is that like that kind of sustainability across these whole topics? Is that a that is a, that there's a really long answer. <laughs> I can totally get into with you. Truly, I, I would love to. Uh, and maybe we can uh, uh, answer that after we after present our last line, so then we can uh, allow people to, to leave because I know somebody already had to go. Uh, so let's let's do that, and then we'll get to that. Cool. Okay. So speaking of sustainability. <laughs> So the three P's, right? Uh, people, planet, prosperity. So this is kind of a, a key omen for for this one. And we have the one maker here. You're looking at 90% Cabernet Sauv and then 10% Petit Bordeaux. So again, we're looking at more of a Bordeaux style wine. It's not looking to be big and opulent. Um, you know, it's not your steakhouse wine, but it could be. But this is the type of conversation that you have with people. Like, if you like this, then maybe this. If you like that, then maybe that. If you like this, then maybe not that. Whatever the case might be, you know, but trying to get people on. And remember, we're the educators and we're the translators. You know, I had um, I had a guest at, when I was the wine director at Oriol. She was so sweet. We tasted, we had like 16 wines by the glass, and we tasted her on like 12 at the bar before she got seated on the reservation. She came back um, to the table and she told me what she told the bartender, and then um, I, I went along with that, and I tried to get her two more wines, and she just didn't like them. I couldn't figure out what was going on. I said, whoa, 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 start, just start over. Like, I know you taste a bunch of wines, but let me, let's pretend you didn't. Let's talk about this. And she said, well, 
I don't like Pinot Noir because of the tannins. And I went, oh, what? What? (laughs) (laughs) Record scratched, you know? (laughs) And I went, I'll be right back. And I ended up bringing out um, Craggy Range Bordeaux blend leading with Merlot that she kind of liked. And then I brought her, yeah, you guessed it, Charlie Palmer's Russian River Pinot Noir. And And I said, I'm not telling you what these are. And then she just, Loved it. I just loved it. And so what I'm trying to say is that people do have preconceived notions of what things are, right? Um, Eric Asimov said the most, uh, people apologize most for not knowing more about wine. I say that's why I have a job, right? Um, people don't apologize for not knowing how to do open heart surgery. They don't apologize for not knowing how to plumb a toilet. They just call the experts in. Well, guess what? We're the experts. But people come in and they apologize for not knowing, and they also come in and they think they know, and so they tell you about one. I mean, love Megan, she told me about Simon. Um, <laughs> but you know, that's, it's all about the translation, and I think that's what's gonna be really important in terms of how you can get these wines into your consumer hands because they're absolutely brilliant wines. Um, would you talk about your Cabernet, please? Right to the center of the vineyard. Hmm. 
great because you can just pick one. <laughs> okay, I'm like, all right, I'm not gonna figure out, I'm not gonna count fines and say, okay, it's just 8%, you know, this and that. So uh, the balance uh, is, in there this year is Willow Creek. <laughs> so, uh, um, so it was just a plan to spend nearly two and a half years and about 40% revenue show. And it was just one of those things where you have to just get it dry without screwing it up and uh, get it in the barrel and get it in the bottle without turning it into vinegar. Um, yeah, vineyard is one of, the, one of the beautiful things. It's nice to be in a place where so much of Paso, where all you have to do is just get the wine dry without screwing it up. <laughs> and the wine makes itself, you think of when I, I make wine, I have a winery in Sonoma, I make wine in Oregon too. And there are certain vineyards that you get to work with where all you got to do is just get it into the barrel without effing it up <laughs> and uh, get it into the bottle. And so Margarita is one of them. A lot of this is that your vineyards like that. Um, your vineyards are like that too, where they just the wine just make themselves. You just have to really just, just be a caretaker in the vineyard and caretaker in the wine. And so, uh, uh, so that's really just what it is. And it li literally, it, it, it could not have been released any time. It may have been released five minutes ago. Yeah. So uh, the wine is going to improve the next couple of hours. And again, with this wine, it's not overbearing with fruit and oak. You know, it's very subtle. And you get these black cherry, black olive, oolong black tea. Like when you get black tea in a wine, you know it's well. <laughs> it's a great wine, you know? These are subtle flavors, they're elegant, they're delicate, but they're still powerful and strong. And I think that that was something we talked about with regards to, I think it was the Villa Creek where it's all about power and grace at the same time. And I think that's a very good way to think about this particular ABA and what they're doing, whether it be a white wine, a rosé, or a red wine, or whether it be, you know, a Tuscan bridal, or, uh, um, companion bridal or, or your otherwise European bridal. So um, in terms of tasting, in terms of what it goes with, uh, it is, they're definitely food wines, they're definitely exciting wines, and they're definitely um, exciting wines. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Uh, we're We're here for more questions uh, and, and answers, for that matter, maybe, or maybe we'll lie to you. I have a slide up here. You can see, you can uh, get my contact information uh, for more about the Pastoral Rules ABA. I want to thank Harry. Harry, thank you so much for having me along with us. This has been another episode of Exploring the Wine Glass. Thanks for listening. If you have suggestions on what topics you would like me to discuss, please reach out on social media. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook as Exploring the Wine Glass. I am also on LinkedIn as Lori Hoybud. Of course, you can always email me at exploringthewineglass at gmail.com. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to help others find me more easily. And most importantly, tell your wine-loving friends, because if you like the podcast, they will too. Music wine by Kevens. Until next week, slancha. So very, very special. You are so special. You even in the Bible. Give me the red, red wine. Give me the white, white.